Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Um, welcome to Encounter Church. Like Jason said earlier, we're glad you're here. And if it's your first time or maybe one of your first few times, uh, we're really thrilled that you uh, are here and that you came back. And today we're going to continue a series that we started last month, the series that is meant to really stretch the way we think and challenge the way we see the world. It's been a series that um, on the surface has been really fun for me because this has been a lifelong obsession, quite honestly. I've always been um, fascinated uh, by the way people see the world and by the way I see the world and the vastness of cultures when you travel around the world, how uh, events happen and people experience them differently. And, and so in a lot of this, this is kind of an opportunity to kind of deep dive into some theoretical, some like abstract things that are operating underneath the surface and to change our perspective a little bit and to kind of grab hold and um, if you haven't been here for a few of them, there's been a few messages that I think have been helpful through this series where we've dived into the power of focus and how our focus really does start to shape our future. And uh, last week, we uh, kind of jumped in and said, how does, what does it look like for a church to have a focus? What's the church, what is this church specifically as we move into this next season and this next stage um, and this church's life, what's our focus going to be? What is it going to look like? And today, I want to introduce an idea, and um, I struggled processing through this because this is one of those things that I absolutely love and I think about all the time that I have trouble communicating. So I'm just going to put my cards on the table and say, if you're here today, um, I am better than what you will experience, okay? Um, my wife last night told me, um, Chris, I don't think I've ever been more confused by what you just said to me. And I was like, thank you. And so uh, we, she's the first round. She protects you from my raw thoughts that don't make sense to anyone in the world but me. Um, but I think the reason I wanted to push this idea out today through the series is because this is something I want to pick up and unpack in the fall. That I, I think this is a really big idea, and especially for those who may be in the room who um, want to grow in their faith. That faith is one of those abstract things that for many of us, maybe we kind of have a loose handle, but if someone was to, to kind of walk up to you right now or a group of people were to throw you up on the stage and tell you how to grow in your faith, you would probably struggle a little bit. Maybe you could regurgitate some things that you heard growing up in church, but the idea of actually how do you as an individual grow in your faith um, can be a hard thing to unpack. And this fall and into the winter, that's something that we're going to Having a new space will allow us to create some new environments where you and I can go deeper into that. And so I wanted to kind of just tease that a little bit this morning and introduce that and just say, hold on for the ride. It's, it's going to be bumpy and it's going to have some twists and turns, but by the end, we're going to get to it and we're going to survive and nobody will be sick. And in fact, someone will actually win something. So here's how I want to kick us off this morning. This is uh, 33.94 fluid ounces of M&Ms. And uh, here's what I want to do to kick you off this morning. Um, in this jar is uh, plain M&Ms. They are yummy because I have tried some because you should test them out before you put them in the jar. I mean, that's just being a good leader, right? And, and so I tested them for you and I can tell you they are safe and they are good. All right. And uh, so here's what I want to do. Um, if you remember when Jason came up, he told you that we have an app. And if you haven't downloaded the app, I want to go ahead and encourage you to do so, because in the app, the very first icon in the app is um, a form that says M&M jar. And at the end of the service, we're going to push out a notification, and the person who guesses the number of M&Ms in this jar, 
will win a very large bag of plain M&Ms, all right? Okay, so if you haven't downloaded the app, go ahead and download it and turn on push notifications. We will not harass you with push notifications. We just want to give honor where honor is due and give you the shout out you deserve if you are able to guess this. My daughter uh, this morning walked into the kitchen and was like, Daddy, what's all those jars of M&Ms for? Like, can I have some? And I said, you have to guess. And she was like, I'll guess. I'll guess till I get it right. Will you tell me what the number is? And so here's your moment, all right? So uh, you have approximately five minutes before we close this thing out because I'm going to tell you the answer um, about halfway through the message. In fact, I'm going to tell you how you can guess this jar and every other jar you encounter for the rest of your life with 98.8% accuracy. That's my promise for today. All right, so go ahead and download the app, click M&M jar. It'll put your name and then put the number of M&Ms that you think are there. And in about seven, eight minutes, that'll be closed out. That'll give you enough time if you haven't downloaded it to download it and turn on push notifications or to turn on push notifications if you already have. Um, And here's why. Because I think this tiny little moment, this insignificant guess, actually points to something that's profound about our life. That I think that this tiny little moment, that moment where you look at the jar and that you write down a number, is actually activating something that has profound implications for how you and I live. And that's what I want to start to unpack today as we continue this series called See the World, that I think that there are some lessons that can be gleaned, that there is one profound lesson that can be learned from this jar, and it is not, like my daughter thinks, that chocolate makes life better, although that is somewhat true. It's a lesson that we see um, made visible in plain eyesight in the life of Jesus about halfway through his ministry on planet Earth, about 2,000 years ago, in in a small moment with his followers around him, a moment that gives us the insight that the life lesson that I think this M&M jar can teach us that points to something deeper. And and it's a hard thing to see in this moment. Why I like it is because it's clearly on display. If you have the app and after you've punched in your number, guess, um, you can go to message notes and the passage will be already loaded in the the notes so you can kind of process through the message today. Um, We're going to be in Mark chapter 4 and as you click on it, let me tell you a little bit about it. If you don't have the app downloaded yet or um, you're not sure, it'll be on the back of the screen with me as I'm walking through it. But it's found in the letter of Mark. And um, for those who are maybe new to the Bible, uh, the letter of Mark is the second of four biographies about Jesus' life, captures his words, his ministry, his message, his miracles, and that the, the New Testament, the distinctly kind of Christian writings about this movement called Christianity and the church, the first four letters in the New Testament are these biographies about Jesus' life. And Mark um, is is a unique book, all four biographies written by four different individuals with four different perspectives about the same person. Mark, we believe, was written um, out of the eyewitness dictations of Peter. Peter the apostle, Peter the brash, bold, courageous, loves to say and talk a big game disciple of Jesus. The one who's now famous throughout the world, the one that we see stamped on church names, the one that we see um, embedded in necklaces, That guy tells Mark and unpacks for Mark his personal experiences. 
And that's where the letter of Mark comes from. And the letter of Mark is a unique book because if you were to read through in one sitting, what you would find is that the letter of Mark is fast-paced. It's, it's like a 30-minute kind of action sequence. It's not so much drama. It's, it's more action. You see words like immediately or suddenly, that there's this progress, there's this movement, and it's racing towards the cross and the resurrection where a bulk of Mark's attention is focused the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And that Mark, being written by Peter, gives you an insight because this is a story about a storm, a storm on a lake that Peter grew up on, that he grew up navigating, that he grew up uh, making a living. This is a, a place, this is a space he knows intimately. He is a fisherman. He knows how to boat. He knows how to boat well, and he knows what storms really are. He doesn't exaggerate. He's not caught off guard by serious storms. And so this kind of gives you a little bit of an insight. This story centers around Jesus as he's about halfway through his teaching ministry. And so he's beginning to grow a crowd. And verse 35, we pick up, it says, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Speaking of the Lake of Galilee, um, there were uh, towns that bordered the lake. And for Jesus to be able to move from one side to the other, if you notice, it says, Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat, and there were other boats with him. You see, there were so many crowds at this point, there were so many people at this point that walking around the lake, which was very feasible, was starting to get difficult. And Jesus was going from town to town, speaking, preaching, healing, doing all these incredible miracles. And Jesus had a purpose to, to make it all the way around to the various towns around this lake. But the crowds were starting to hinder him. They were starting to slow him down. And so the, after the end of the full day, Jesus knows on his itinerary, I want to be across the lake. I want to be at that town tomorrow. And so he looks at his disciples and his disciples like, hey, we've got a shortcut. Let's just go across the lake. The crowds can't follow us that way. It'll give us a head start. We can reach and engage new people. And so they load up in the boats, and they begin to go across. And it says, verse 37, that a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So you kind of get this context. Remember, this is Peter writing. So Peter makes sure that Mark really gets that this isn't a small storm. This is a life-threatening, all is lost, our boat is going to sink, furious serious storm. And I think it helps to understand that a, a fisherman is behind the writing because this isn't an overdramatic kind of description of a little bit of a thunderstorm that rolls in as the evening is coming. This is life-threatening. This is terrifying. And this is a scary moment. And then in the midst of this terrifying moment, the invisible becomes visible. You see, Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So you see this moment where Jesus is asleep. His disciples are watching the waves crash in. And the ones who are navigating the boat are concerned, we're about to sink. And the reason I said the invisible comes visible is because this fascination I've had my entire life is on display here. The same experience, Jesus and the disciples are having the exact same experience, but the way they react to it is fundamentally different. The same circumstances, but two different conclusions. One has fallen asleep. The others 
are falling to pieces. Right? They're in a state of panic while Jesus is at peace. Right? One is resting, the other ones are wringing their hands, throwing out water as fast as they can. The same experience, two different reactions. That these people, these people in the exact same space and place in life see it completely different. And that's been this, this obsession my entire life, partially, I think, because I grew up with this being displayed for me. I um, was born to an incredible woman who listens to every message, so I'm going to say, hey, mom, I love you. And, um, and one of the things that was so incredible about growing up with her is the family that she came from. That my mom uh, was born to a young teenage girl, roughly 14, 15 years old, that um, you can imagine that a young teenage girl having a baby at 14 or 15 cannot even begin to raise the child. And so my mom grows up being bounced around from home to home, goes through numerous foster homes, spends time with multiple families, and through the journey, her younger sister kind of comes in tow with her. And so now they're bouncing from family members to family members. And and, and of course, because of just the the situation and the brokenness of my family, they um, experience incredible abuse and incredible neglect. And, And just out of the sheer volume of homes that my mom is bounced around, she never graduates high school. And experiences things that I don't think I would ever be able to process through. She's unfortunately not the exception because everyone in my family has that same life story of brokenness and addictions and uh, substance abuse that everyone in my family had been to prison. No one had graduated high school. That's where she and her sister, that's what they were coming out of. And My mom had me when she was 18 years old. And the thing that I noticed as I grew up, because my mom began to pull away from our family, the extended family, and raised me and my brother. Um, My brother and I lost our father when we were, what we thought, uh, around me being three years old in an attempted murder-suicide. I'm just being super candid with you. This is what I grew up with. And I remember when we would spend time with our extended family, I would see their life choices on display. And my mom would would always, always, frequently, she would tell my brother and I some of the same things over and over. She would say, son, the world doesn't owe you anything. The world doesn't owe you anything. You're not a victim. You can be victorious. You may have not determined where you came from, son, but you can determine where you go. She would repeat these things. It doesn't matter what the voices are saying. You still have a choice in what you do. I mean, she would repeat these phrases and these statements over and over and over for us. That you have a choice. You may have not determined your circumstance, but you still have a choice. And growing up, I watched my aunt and I watched my mom and the parallel path where they started from completely go completely opposite. I remember visiting my aunt in a rehab center. I remember visiting family members in prison. And yet my mom, her life trajectory looked completely different. And it's because the things that she repeated to us over and over and over and over again 
were these underlying invisible beliefs that she had that determined her behaviors. And whereas my aunt, now two genera- now we have a couple generations at play, and I can see this played out, that my aunt's kids are in the same place my aunt was when I was growing up. And now my mom is a grandmother with a, a little girl and countless other kids, and they're growing up in a completely different context. And I think that's probably where this, uh, this obsession with how do people experience the same thing and end up in two different places comes from. And it's what Jesus, in this moment with his disciples, puts on display for us, that you have two different groups. You've got Jesus and his disciples experiencing the same thing, but what they what they get out of it is so different. One has peace and the other ones are falling to pieces. When I asked you to guess earlier, you did exactly what my mom beat into us and what my mom did when she took that first step to leave home when she was in 11th grade. You drew from some back place. You didn't know you did it. You didn't it, but you pulled from some back place and you had, you had some belief about this container. You had some idea and assumption about the size of an M&M and your supercomputer up on top of your neck started to spit out a number. And here's why I know you all did that. Because none of you said one. And none of you said a billion. And the reason why is that you pulled in that moment, you pulled up a model, an assumption, a belief, and it determined your action. It determined the behavior of your fingers typing that number in. And your model may be accurate or it may be not, but you all had a model in mind when you saw this container. So let me give you the correct model. This is the freebie. The, based on the average M&M size and the capacity and the way things typically fall out in the sorting and them being spherical, here's a general ratio you need to know. For every one liter container of M&Ms, you will have 1,011 M&Ms, plain M&Ms inside of it. That, that ratio holds true to about a gallon. And up to a gallon-sized container with M&Ms, you can predict within 98.8% accuracy the number of M&Ms inside of a container, 1,011 per one liter. This is one liter, which means there are 1,011 M&Ms inside. And yes, I counted them all. Because I wanted to make sure that I was meticulous when I said the number and that inside this container is 1,011. And here's what happens. When you have a better belief system, when you have an accurate assumption, your behaviors and your actions and reactions are better because of it. That there is something powerful about realizing that this principle underneath the surface, these invisible, behave, these invisible beliefs, these invisible assumptions, influence our behaviors, our actions, and our reactions. And that the better we can refine that model, the more we can begin to recognize and replace negative behave, like beliefs and negative assumptions, the better we will find ourselves with correct behaviors and correct actions and reactions. So now let me get out of the theoretical and jump straight into what does this play out in everyday life? Like, how does this flesh out? Not just a story about my mom, but maybe your story or my story. One, one of the areas that we see this a lot is um, in conversation that turns into conflict inside relationships. 
right? Um, maybe I'm the only one in this room who's had conflict in conversation with my spouse or my family members. So if that's just me, then feel free to take notes about this oddity that we have where things devolve into debate and arguments. And what we don't realize is that oftentimes these visible behaviors, these visible escalating screen matches are really happening underneath the surface because we bring these invisible beliefs and assumptions to the table. Perhaps you grew up in a household where you learned where you caught that the way you won an argument is whoever's the loudest and the angriest wins every time. And that's what you grew up with. That's the assumption that you kind of grabbed hold of and you stuffed down deep. And so when you have conflict, when a conversation turns into a confrontation, what happens is that you pull on those invisible beliefs and you get louder and you get louder and you get angrier and you get angrier because you know from what you've seen that's how you win the argument. Or maybe you grew up in an opposite context where you watched your family with this facade of peace where you kind of caught and you picked up this assumption that if you don't confront an issue, you can have peace around that issue. That as long as we don't press into that problem, we have peace in our household. You don't have peace, you have denial. But if you grew up Watching that play out, this passive-aggressive, this, this let's not talk about the elephant in the room, let's not talk about the herd of elephants in the room, let's not talk about how the herd of elephants just took out a family member that used to be in the room, then what happens is if we're not careful, if you're not recognizing or replacing, then those invisible assumptions, those invisible behaviors start to play out in our lives. We do that. Let me jump to parenting, because I, I think this, it comes out in parenting, it's really raw. A lot of times, these assumptions, these beliefs that we have hide, and then we have a kid. And then they become very visible. Because all of a sudden, we start to notice that we project things onto them, or that we react to them in the way that we uh, were reacted to growing up. So, for example, uh, maybe you grew up in a household where the hammer came down. It was harsh, it was clear, and it was in your face, and you fixed it, and you moved on. And that's how we did it. You need to get better, scream, scream, here's what you did wrong, don't do it again. And that's how you dealt with every problem. You brought the hammer down, mom, dad, however it worked. And now you're a parent, and you're playing this thing out with your kid, and it doesn't work because it's a different kid. My, my personality type is to bring the hammer down, right? To roll up, here's my case because I'm already right, so let's not even discuss if a possibility I am wrong because that's clearly not the case. So let's talk about what you did wrong. Let's talk about how we're going to fix that, and, let's gonna, and then we're going to process and move on, and I'm good. And so my natural tendency is to roll up into the room and lay the hammer down and then walk out because I, I was right, and I made it right, and I did it right, and I'm good. And, and God has given our family this tiny, sweet, fragile flower who does not react at all to this approach of the hammer. If I walk into the room and I bring the hammer down with my five-year-old little girl, for, she shuts down. She doesn't hear me. 
In fact, with her, I've had to learn because I've had to recognize these assumptions that I've brought in and how they influence my actions and reactions to her, and I've had to replace them. And so with her, I've learned that dealing with her in these moments of discipline, correction, kind of redirection is, is kind of a twofold action. Militarily, you come in, you swoop in, you stabilize the situation, right? And then you send this, this emotional support team around later after everything has gotten stable, and then you start to talk about it. That you can't talk about it in the moment. There's too much emotion. And that I made the mistake frequently, and some of you maybe can relate. I would mistake the moment where she emotionally broke in exhaustion to be a moment where she was, in fact, open to correction. And it was not the same thing. That maybe you have someone in your life where it's those moments, they're emotional, and then they're finally they're exhausted, they're spent, they have no more reserve in their battery. And for me, in my personality, I would take that as, okay, they finally broke, they're, now they're open, and I can give them the lesson. I can speak the correction. And what I've had to learn, first as a husband and now as a father, um, is that that isn't openness. That's exhaustion. And that none of us learn well in exhaustion. None of us make good decisions when we're exhausted. And so that's why I've adopted this, this kind of two-system two structure where it's stabilize, support, and now I speak. And that sometimes it means I come, back, I come back later and I just say, hey, Ella, you remember earlier this morning this happened. Let's talk about that. That for us, we've had to adopt our approach, specifically me, because I was bringing to the table these invisible assumptions about how you deal and how you discipline and how you correct. Or we do it with the way we project, right? We all have, um, we understand genetics, and there are moments when our kids do things that remind us of us. They remind us maybe of your ex-husband or your ex-wife, or they remind you of some relative that you have, and in that moment, you overreact. And, and it's really not a reaction to them. It's a reaction to something that you see in them that's really inside of you. So let me get practical with what I mean. So um, some of you probably don't realize this, but when I was in college, I got diagnosed with OCD. Um, the moment that my wife told me uh, we were pregnant with our daughter, I wept. I'm not a big weeper. I don't cry a ton. I cried probably harder than I have ever cried in my life. And the reason why was because I was so terrified that she was going to have it. it. It almost killed me. And the darkness that it brought into my life, it almost destroyed me. And I was deeply terrified that my little girl, who at the time I didn't even know yet, could potentially have this time bomb sitting inside of her. And I've caught myself doing this just recently. I project my insecurity. I project my anxiety about the disorder that I have. When I see her do something that I think is strange, I want to point it out and say, don't do that. Don't, no, 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 don't do that. And Jenny finally looked at me recently and was like, why do you tell her not to do that? Like, she's a five-year-old little girl, and it hit me. This invisible, this invisible assumption, this invisible, like, oh my goodness, I'm projecting my fear and my anxiety on this child who doesn't even know how to spell the word OCD yet. Right? 
And maybe yours isn't as serious, as intense as a mental disorder, but maybe the way they get angry really fast reminds you of your ex-husband. Or maybe the way they're just flippant reminds you of some sibling or some uncle or aunt that you grew up with that you remember being told they made bad decisions. And that oftentimes these visible behaviors are actually demonstrating and are playing out of these invisible beliefs underneath the surface. And this is what Jesus, this is what's playing out with Jesus and his disciples is they have two different beliefs about what's going on. The disciples, right, if you notice, they, in the verse 38, they say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Because in the Jewish context at this time, there's this belief that um, it was this ancient superstition that God's only had power in their domains. And so if you served a God who was the God of land, when you were in the ocean or when you were above water, that God no longer had power. And there was this ancient Jewish idea because he's the God of Israel, right? He's the God of the promised land. He's the God of this nation state. He's the God of land. And there was serious questions about whether or not God was still powerful when you got on the water. That maybe the gods of the water had more powerful. They were more powerful than the gods we serve on land. And so what you see in this moment are these disciples and some of these invisible assumptions they have, some of these invisible beliefs spilling out. They're like, don't you care? Like, we're over water. This is dangerous. We could die. I'm a fisherman. I know how to navigate a boat, and this is bad, Jesus. And they, they draw this assumption that he simply just does not care about them. He doesn't, he doesn't care what's going on. And Jesus picks up on the moment, and he does something that is really helpful because maybe you're listening to me and you're like, okay, I'm not as confused as you thought I was going to be, which is good. But here's the part that does confuse me. How do I understand? How do I recognize? How do I identify invisible assumptions and beliefs? How do I figure out those things? And what Jesus does in the next moment with just a couple sentences, is he gives us insight in how to do that. He, he says to them in verse 39, he says, he got up, he rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, quiet, be still, which is incredible. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. So you go from a furious storm to a furious calm in a moment. Not natural, completely supernatural moment. And then he says in verse 40, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You see, Jesus understood something, that oftentimes you can understand someone's beliefs if you look at their behaviors. So, for example, this week, there was this beautiful moment where this was put on display for us in Canada, right? This man here is um, out cutting the grass, and his wife comes to the door and says, Honey, there is a large tornado in the background. And he's like, I got to cut this grass. And he says this to his wife. I got my eye on it. And he keeps cutting the grass. Now, here's the thing. You get an insight to that guy's beliefs by his behavior. That he's crazy. <laughs> right? That's the first one. But the second one is that he really sincerely believes by keeping his eye on it, he's got it. I got that. I see it. You only got to worry about a tornado you don't see. 
I mean, that's the belief he has. A tornado you see is okay. It's the one that you don't see that gets you every time. And that's his belief. And you see it through the behavior. And Jesus says to his disciples, look, that's why he criticizes their criticism as a statement about belief. Do they say anything about their beliefs or faith? No, they say, Jesus, do you not care about us? And Jesus recognizes that at the tip, this is an iceberg. That behavior, underneath that behavior is a deeper belief that they're not sure God's in control. They're not sure that God has them. They're uncertain if God even cares about them while they're on this water. Yeah, sure, we've seen him do these incredible things on land, but can he do it here too? And Jesus sees that through their behaviors is an insight to their beliefs. And I would say that one of the ways that you and I can recognize and begin the process of replacing is by looking at those moments, those difficult moments in our lives, and use the behaviors. How do you respond to your child? How do you deal with conflict? How do you deal with financial disagreements in your household? How do you deal with dating and relationships? That the behaviors that you demonstrate give you insight to the beliefs and the assumptions underneath the surface. And unless we start to beat those beliefs that work against us, then what we find is we will keep repeating the behaviors. This is why Jesus makes a stand in this moment. He says, look, you guys, it isn't about your criticism of me not caring. It's about you don't trust that God is in control. You don't trust that I am with you. You mistake me sleeping for me being slack. And it's kind of like my daughter, whenever, I don't know, maybe if you are around kids, when they experience something they've never experienced and they get scared, the first thing they do is if it's a new experience, they'll look to you, right? Have you ever noticed that? They're like, I'm not sure what to do with this. I've never experienced this. I feel afraid. And then they look up at you, whether you're an aunt, uncle, cousin, mother, or father, right? They're kind of like, is this okay? Should I be terrified? Like, should I scream? Should I weep? And as parents, we, you know, you, you recognize this is good. We got this. And I've seen those moments with our daughter where she'll look up to Jenny and I, and we're like, it's okay. Mommy and dad, we got this. We got our eye on it. Right? And she completely goes at peace and is able to step into the circumstance with us. And I think that Jesus was trying to say to his disciples, look, me sleeping is not me being slack. Me sleeping was I got this. I have it under control. And that verse 41, it says that they moved from being terrified of the storm. It says they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. That the whole power of this principle played out in the Christian faith is that in this moment, it centered around who they believed Jesus was. They stepped into that boat with some beliefs that didn't reflect the true power that he had. They'd seen him do some cool things, but they didn't understand that all of the universe responded to him when he spoke. And then I think that maybe if you're in this room and you're processing through faith or you're listening online and you're not sure what you think about Jesus, then I think it's okay that your behaviors reflect that. 
that I think for, for many people around the world, they, when we as Christians step into difficult circumstances, that's the moment when they should start watching even more. Because that's the moment where our beliefs can start to influence our behaviors in a way that's fundamentally different than how most people would walk through struggles and trials and difficult circumstances. Because our beliefs will begin to influence our behaviors and they look different. And so maybe you're in the midst of something right now and it's really difficult. How would, how would your belief in who Jesus is and the power that he has and the majesty that he has and the fact that when he speaks that mountains move, that storms cease, that even in the most difficult circumstances with his disciples, he could sleep because he, he understood it was all under control right in the palm of his hand. That how would your belief about him influence how you interact with them, whether it's that child that's currently driving you insane or the teenager that you're afraid you're losing or the financial situation that you find yourself in or those life decisions that you're looking to make, that what behavior would be demonstrated if you really genuinely believe that he was with you and that he was for you? What steps would you take? What risk would you engage with if you knew that God was for you, that God was with you, and that even in your darkest moments, his presence makes all the difference? That it's okay if the storm isn't being calmed because his presence is there keeping you calm. That I think that what captivated the early church, what captivated the early civilization, that the church was born into a Roman empire that crucified Jesus. And within a couple hundred years, that empire had been conquered by the very Christ that they had killed, by his love, by the people demonstrating their behaviors in this belief that they serve a God of the resurrection. So they walk into dead things. They step into sick circumstances with a confidence that even if all of it falls apart, he still has it all together. That there was this irresistible, attractive, bold faith that marked the early church and that even when they stomped them out, even when they threw them into the Colosseum to fight lions, there was a holy confidence that those people had standing even in the place of death because they believed that even if you kill me, it's okay. I have a God who brings dead things back to life. It's okay that we're struggling with infertility because we have a God who brings life. That we can step into the hardest, darkest of circumstances and demonstrate a behavior that reflects a radical different belief that God is for us, that he is with us. And if that's true, then it doesn't matter what stands against us. Whether it's a storm, whether it's financial struggles, whether it's relational struggles, and that you and I can walk into these circumstances armed with the realization that our behaviors are a reflection of our beliefs and that we can start to change our behaviors by starting to reflect and replace the beliefs underneath it all. And that's why at the end of the day, the disciples had this realization where they were terrified, not in a terrified way of like scared. This, it's not an irrational fear. It was this deep awe and reverence of, wow, we're in the presence of someone far more powerful than we ever imagined. And what we want to do today as we close out the service is we want to um, lead 
and leave you with a song called Oceans. And it's a song that was written out of one of these moments where the disciples, processing through a storm, watch Jesus step into that storm and change it. And that for some of us, whether online or in this room, are in the midst of circumstances where right now, with big questions or big struggles, we're, we're unsure. Whether it's in your household with a child, whether it's in your banking account, whether it's at your workplace, whether it's in this huge question mark about your life stage or age or season, but that we, as people who follow Jesus, can step into those moments with a holy confidence, believing that he is with us, that he is for us, and that even if the waves crash over the boat, we're not going to sink because he is with us in the midst of it. And that this fall, I look forward to kind of unpacking a lot more and clarifying probably some of the confusion that I helped to deposit this morning inside your brain. Because I really believe that when we start to uproot the negative assumptions and start to replace the bad beliefs with the correct ones, then it's not just M&M jars that we can begin to correctly guess the numbers. It's that we can start to live a life with better decisions and fewer regrets and demonstrate behaviors that all the world starts to notice because there's something fundamentally different about how we live our lives because there's something fundamentally different about Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are and the love that you have for us. Thank you for the way that you uh, step into the storms with us. That, that you step into the struggles and the trials that we go through. And I pray even now that you would um, whisper into our hearts peace. That we would take advantage of this song and this opportunity to maybe pour out our struggle to you. To speak our anxiety to you. And that we would experience what they'd experienced 2,000 years ago. Your presence, your peace, your power in our lives. And it's in that name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Um, I ask you to stand. We're going to respond singing. If you, Maybe you've never heard this song before. The lyrics will be on the screen. Um, this is also a moment where we carve out space um, for you. Maybe if you're a first-time guest, maybe there's a way we can pray for you or maybe a way that we can help you take a next step spiritually. That we've created a space called Starting Point. We've created an icon on the app called Starting Point. And that even in the connection card you were given, we, we want to carve out space for you to say, hey, how can we as a church be a hope and a help for you in life? And, um, and this is a time where as the baskets are passed, maybe you just drop the card or fill out the connection card or even plan just to swing by Starting Point. Um, for those who attend Encounter Church, this is a place we carve out to practice our generosity. That uh, even at the end of this month, we have about 600 plus people registered for a free movie night we're doing in the park across the street. Um, that we as a church have been radically generous because we serve a God who is radically generous. That we take our cues on what to do from what he did for us. And this is where we use that moment to carve out that practice. Um, some of you got an email from me yesterday just as a reminder that... Um, Part of that radical generosity and just celebrating some of you who call Encounter Church home is that of the $150,000 that we're seeking to raise to kind of transition our next step, because we only have 
two more Sundays after this Sunday in this space, um, which is really exciting. That, uh, yes. And in about a month, we will be standing in an auditorium with our cup of coffee, with music, right? No signs that say positively, no food or drink. It'll say positively, bring your coffee in, okay? And that in about a month, we'll be standing in that space and that we will be able to have done that because of the generosity of the people. And um, so we just wanted to, for some of you, the, some of you have already stepped out and pledged and given, and we're already a third of the way through. And that we, we kind of set aside this week as a week to, as, to begin to practice, to bring in our pledges, to say, hey, over the course of this year, uh, we want to give towards this project that before December 31st, we want to give this much. And that means maybe you don't have it today, but that, that you have a plan and you have a target. Before December 31st, we're going to contribute because we've secured a line of credit that uh, an organization has graciously given us to cover us through the construction phase. And so we've already raised the money to, to pay for the building. Like the building is set. We're in the place where we're wanting to put furnitures and fixtures and lights and speakers and those, those, those details. And so that's what this money will go to, and we're already a third of the way there. And for those who are wanting to jump in and make pledges and give to that, uh, we have these cards for you at Starting Point. Also in the app, you can pledge. Um, you don't have to give. I know there was a little bit of confusion in the app earlier, but you can click on Building Fund, and you can just put the amount of pledge that you want to give towards it. You don't have to give anything today, but that will help us make wiser decisions, make sure that we make wise purchases, um, because we want to be ready in a month when we step into that new space. And so um, we're excited about what God's doing. We're stepping into this in this, the heart of this story that we believe there is a God who is for us. There's a God who is with us. There's a God who can restore broken marriages. There's a God who can set into the hearts of kill, kids and children holy confidence that they can step into adulthood knowing that God loves them, that God is for them, that God is with them, that they can step into those moments of uncertainty with a confidence that comes from being deeply rooted and knowing he's with them. And, and so we just, we're excited about the spaces and the places and the environments we're going to be able to create. Now I'll, I'll shut up because I'll start speaking again, but we do this because of you and because of your faith and what God is doing through this church. And we believe the best is yet to come. And so as we sing this song, as you sing it over your life, as we sing it over the future of our church, let's believe that God can call us into deeper waters, that he can still the, the craziest storms, and that he is genuinely for us and with us in our most darkest moments of life.